Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning with you. Um, I'm very thankful to the Lord for this opportunity to preach God's word to my home church this morning. And my name's Vincent Lee Frieri, and I've, my wife and I, Danielle, have been members here for several years. We have a little boy named Dante who's five years old, who's growing like a weed. And I've served as an elder here. I've had the privilege of serving as an elder here in the past. And I have, again, the privilege this morning to preach the word to us. The title of my sermon this morning is Serve the King, for He Will Return. We're living in anxious times, though, aren't we? Globally, there are wars taking place that remind us how fragile this world really is the war in Ethiopia, the violence in Myanmar is tragic, as well as the invasion of the Ukraine. And here in the US, we have our own stories and events that are very unsettling, don't we? And yet God promises to be with us. The most important stories, warnings, and instructions though, are the ones that God gives us. One such story is our focus this morning. And my prayers for all of us this morning to leave here with more confidence on how to live for Jesus. But let's first look into the background of the parable. In ancient Israel, the parable was used to teach spiritual truths. For example, in the Old Testament, if you recall, the prophet Nathan used a parable to point out David's sin. Parables could also be found in the writing of Jewish rabbis. So when Jesus used the parable, it's not like he was introducing a new teaching method. Rather, he was using a familiar teaching tool to teach. And I think Walter W. Wessel, one of the authors of the Wycliffe Bible Dictionary, makes an excellent point. He said that Jesus used parables to proclaim the kingdom of God, which came in his own person and ministry. So since Jesus used the parable this way, it's crucial to interpret parables correctly. Over the years, some Christians have misinterpreted parables. They added extra meaning, that were not intended to be taught. And this is why we should focus on the major points that Jesus makes in a parable. So that from these major points, we can apply them. When the leadership here asked me to preach this Sunday, I was really excited about the opportunity because of the season in which the church is in. It's such a sacred season. And next Sunday is Palm Sunday when we celebrate Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And so I would like us to turn to a parable this morning in Luke chapter 19, 
that Jesus told just beforehand, just before he made his way into Jerusalem for that triumphal entry. It's the parable of the 10 minus found in Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. And before we look at the parable, I just want to set the context, uh, the stage, so we understand the context in which it was given. First, Luke tells us earlier in chapter 18 that Christ had told a wealthy man to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. And then Jesus informed the 12 disciples that they were headed for Jerusalem so that he could fulfill what was written about him. Jesus told them he would be mocked, flogged, spit upon, shamefully treated, and killed, but that he would rise again. And what's so interesting is the 12 didn't grasp what he said, Luke tells us, at that point. And after Jesus told them this, they were traveling toward Jerusalem, and they were outside of Jericho. And a blind man along the road heard that Jesus was walking by, and upon learning this, he cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And as a result, Christ healed the man. And this man was so excited, Luke tells us, that he followed Jesus and glorified God. And now this sets us up for the actual setting of the parable. Jesus and the 12 have now come into Jericho itself, which was an important commercial and military center. And it was the last stop that Jewish pilgrims from Galilee would make before the six-hour trek on foot to Jerusalem for the Passover. So if you can just imagine it, there were just people probably everywhere in Jericho at this point. And as Jesus and the disciples were walking through, a tax collector named Zacchaeus was in a tree hoping to see Jesus because he was too short to see him and the crowd was blocking his view. And Jesus looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm gonna stay at your home today. And the crowd of people that were blocking Zacchaeus' view was the same crowd of people that when they heard Jesus say, Zacchaeus, I'm staying at your home, they complained because he was a tax collector. And it was some of these very people, along with the 12 disciples, that were the original audience of the parable of the 10 minus. And be let's look at verse 11 before we read the rest of the parable. It says, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. In verse 11, we're told two reasons why Jesus told this parable at this particular time. Number one, it was because he was near Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that he would atone for his people's sins and rise again victoriously over death. Yet Christ wanted the people to hear this parable before all this took place. And I think there's, very, there's something very significant about that timing. And number two, the other reason why Jesus tells this parable at this time is because 
Many of the Jewish people believed that the kingdom of God was going to be established on this earth very quickly. And although they didn't properly understand what this meant, Jesus still wanted to inform them it was not going to take place as soon as they thought. What was their idea? What was the notion that the Jewish people had at this time of the coming kingdom of God? Well, you might recall that, be, that the prophet Nathan, many years earlier, told David that in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, he said, your throne, God spoke through Nathan and said, your throne shall be established forever. But after David died, we all know that the Old Testament tells us the people of Israel and their kings departed from following God. And God eventually sent them in the exile for 70 years. But that after that, God restored them to their land, miraculously. And as time went on, many of the Jews were expecting a Messiah, which means anointed one to come. And they had anticipated that this Messiah would be a priest, a prophet, or a king, or some combination of all three. But the greatest expectation that they had including Jesus's audience, was that the Messiah would be some military leader that would destroy the oppressors. So our Lord told this parable because many hoped he was that military leader that, were under, that would usher in a physical glorious reign. And this was not going to happen. Let's read the parable now that we know this information. Starting in verse 12. Therefore he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, master, your miner has earned 10 more miners. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your miner has made five miners. So he said to him, You will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your miner. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you. Since you are a harsh man, you collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, 
take the miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. But they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine, who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Let's examine and unpack these verses together, shall we? In verses 12 and 13, Jesus tells how a noble had left and gone to another country that was far away in order to be given the authority to be king over that country that he had left from. And he received this authority, and when he returned home to be king, he gathered ten of his servants and gave them one minor each. That was before he had left, excuse me. Before he went to this country, he gave them ten minors. And then he went to be given the authority to be king. And a minor in U.S. currency would be about $16 or so. And $16 in the first century economy of Israel could go a long way. A minor took about three months to earn for a laborer. So 10 minus will be, if you think about it, two and a half years pay. And the noble told his servants to do business with the one minor, which was worth around $16, like I said, until he returned. But verse 14 is very disturbing. It says his subjects, his people, that is, hated him. They despised him. In fact, after the noble had left, his subject sent a delegation to the very country the noble was going to because they didn't want him to be their king. This didn't work, however, because in verse 15, it says that the noble was given the authority to become king. And when the noble returned, this is when he called for his ten servants to see how much they made using the minus he had given them. In verses 16 through 19, the parable tells us that two of the servants were very successful with the one minor they were given. The first servant said that the one minor had made 10 more, the second one that the minor had made five more, and the noble's reaction was that he was pleased, and as a result of their obedience, they were gonna be given charge over towns. But in verses 20 and 21, we learn of some bad news. Instead of putting his mind at a use, the third servant kept it in a cloth, put it aside, nice and safely in a cloth, and he said it was because he was afraid. Why? Because he told the noble, his master, that he was harsh. And in the original language, this word harsh can mean demanding or requiring close precision. The servant then went on to say that his master takes, you take what you do not store away and you gain from what others have sown. But in verses 22 through 24, the noble's reply to the servant was indeed harsh when he called him an evil servant. 
If the servant knew these things to be true about the noble, he should have put the miner in the bank to potentially gain interest. And what happens next to the servant is unfortunate. The one miner that he had was to be given to the servant that had gained 10 minus. So now this servant was left with nothing. In verses 25 and 26, it seems like the servants mention that they're surprised that the one with 10 minus got to have the one from the servant who did nothing. Maybe they thought it was unfair. But Jesus explained that the servants who have will be given more, and the servant that gained no minus would have it taken from him. And at the end, a hair-raising, shocking statement was made. The noble who was now king commanded that his enemies be slaughtered in front of him. Biblical scholars think it's possible that Jesus used this storyline in Jericho partially because his audience would have been very familiar with a similar story concerning a noble named Herod Archelaus some years earlier. Herod Archelaus was a noble living in Jericho who had traveled to Rome seeking permission from Caesar Augustus to be king over Jericho in the surrounding region. And while there in Rome, a delegation of 50 Jews from Jericho traveled there to protest Archelaus being made king over them. And their protest worked. And Herod Archelaus was not made king, but was still given a position of authority. And when he returned to his palace in Jericho, he asked his servants how they used his money while he was gone in Rome. This is actually documented. And this sounds just like the storyline, doesn't it, of the 10 minus? And so although years had passed since this event took place, Jesus' hearers would have remembered it. And now that we know the parable, now that we've looked at it, Let's consider what the Lord wanted the people in Jericho to learn from it and apply. Because I'm certain, brothers and sisters, that he wants us to hear and apply these same truths as well. And there's four biblical truths that I believe this parable is teaching us. Four. One is to honor Jesus with the salvation and gifts he has given us. Two, to store up treasure in heaven. The third one is to look out for counterfeit Christians. And lastly, to be aware that Christ will judge his enemies. Who is the noble of the parable? I think the noble in some ways represents Jesus. When it says that the noble went away to a far land and that he told his servants he was going to come back, this reminds us of what happens after Easter, of when Jesus ascends into heaven and he went away for a time and is now seated at the right hand of his father. And John tells us that he actually told his disciples, I am going away. 
And who were the ten servants? The ten servants represent Jesus' disciples. But why ten? Why not twenty? Twenty-five? One biblical scholar suggests that ten is considered a perfect number in Scripture, signifying completion. So ten seems to signify, in this case, all of Jesus' disciples. Not just the ones who were alive at the time, but all of Jesus' disciples throughout the ages. That means you and I. My first point is we are to honor Jesus with the salvation and gifts he has given us. The ten minus that Jesus gave his servants, what should these make us think of? Should they make us think? They should make us think, excuse me, of the gifts that Jesus has given us. Think about what Jesus has given us. He's given us his righteousness, our salvation. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us eternal life. And if this was not enough, the Holy Spirit has distributed gifts to you and I for the purpose of glorifying God and building up our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. And just as the noble asked his servants to do business with the miners while he was away, Christ commands us to serve him as his redeemed people and to use the spiritual gifts we have been given while he is away, while, he, while we await his return. And I think that some of us, we don't think we have gifts from God to use because we can compare ourselves with other Christians and when we do that, we don't feel as gifted as other Christians or as articulate or as knowledgeable as other believers. Yet, we know that the Lord has a way of using those who don't feel adequate. And the Bible gives us plenty of examples of these men and women. I think we need to study those people and put ourselves in their shoes and say, if God could use them, he can certainly use me. And instead of comparing ourselves to others, why don't we instead just focus on trusting God to use us as he sees fit while we step out in faith? There's a great quote that the Baptist preacher of London named Charles Spurgeon said. He said, believer, if the conversion of the world rested with the church, if the outgathering of the elect depended on us, it would never be done. But God makes us work for this end. And so he works first in us, and then he works with us. How this ought to encourage us to work. This little arm, what can it do? But that eternal arm, what can it not do? This tongue, how feeble it can speak. But the voice of him who spake as never man spake, how persuasively it can speak. And so 
You and I just need to step out in faith and know that God has gifted us and he's going to use us as he sees fit to glorify himself and to encourage the church. My second point, store up treasure in heaven. As we saw in verses 16 through 19, the noble returned. He summoned his servants to see what they had done with the minus he had given them. And he richly rewarded two of the servants, I would think, telling them, now you're in charge of ten and five towns. Because they gained more minus with just the one they were given. What do we learn from this? We're going to be rewarded for our good works. Colossians 1, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Think about it. Someday, not only are we going to be able to enjoy God face to face forever, but in addition, we're also going to enjoy a treasure. And Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, he says, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Wow. Why then do some of us not give much thought to heavenly rewards? Perhaps it's because we're distracted? We live in a culture that seeks instant gratification and immediacy. Heavenly eternal rewards certainly do not fall into this category. We may work hard for material things like a new car or furniture, and eventually we may have those things in our possession. But when we do good works unto the Lord, we don't see our reward, and we're not going to see it until the end of all things. But that is good news because we're a people that live and have been called to live by faith, not by sight. When we do good works to honor Christ, we're demonstrating that we believe his promises. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? He said, our earthly rewards are not going to last. Moth and rust will destroy them. But treasure in heaven, our heavenly ones, will not be destroyed by wrath and must. They're going to last forever. Our third point this morning is to look out for counterfeit Christians. The third servant calls to mind, you know, the, the one who did nothing with the minor. He calls to mind that those that don't embrace Christ wholeheartedly will be punished. The noble called him evil, and the servant ended up completely empty-handed. Listen, so it will be with those who profess Christ, but do not truly embrace him. These people that prof profess Christ, but have not truly embraced him, show that they have not truly embraced him 
when they really don't have a strong desire to honor them, him with their life. And remember, Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, which is to believe and obey Christ. Later on, the apostle James wrote in his letter, chapter 2 of 17, uh, uh, verse 17, he said that faith without any works it's dead. In other words, if someone has a true, authentic, genuine faith in Jesus, it will result in good works honoring Jesus. But I want to be clear. It's not the good works that save us. But Jesus' disciples do the good works because they've already been saved. Our last point this morning is to be aware that Christ will judge his enemies. Finally, the noble demanded that his enemies be slaughtered right in front of him. This is shocking. This is shocking. Jesus, though, is not condoning death or promoting violence. But the point here is this. Jesus will bring harsh punishment or judgment upon those who don't believe and submit to his reign. And the Bible refers to these people as his enemies. Now, some of us may be stuck here because our culture today says that people don't deserve to be judged. Some of us have a really hard time with this whole idea of God punishing those who don't believe and sin against him. Our culture asks, why would a loving God punish people? The answer is because God alone is holy and perfectly good. And we can't fully understand just how holy and perfectly good he is. Because there's none among us on this planet especially in ourselves, that are perfectly holy and perfectly good. And God can only do what is right. It's impossible for him to do wrong. It's impossible. The prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 13, tells us that he cannot, God cannot even look at evil. And we've heard from our recent sermons in the book of Romans that no one is righteous before God, for all have sinned against him. A sin against the one true God deserves punishment. In fact, Jesus said that when he returns, there will be a final judgment. You might remember the passage in Matthew 25, verse 32, when Jesus declared that when he comes and sits on his throne, in glory, all the nations, all the people groups from all the ages are going to be gathered before him and he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are his faithful servants 
who were redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the goats are those who did not believe in him. If there's anyone in here this morning that has not surrendered to Jesus as the only one that can save you from your sin and has not submitted to him as Lord, I beg you, I beg you this morning to give your life to him. Don't allow the gospel message to be communicated to you and do nothing about it because there's the risk of your heart becoming harder and harder to it every time you say no. Jesus loves you and he wants to reward you and he wants to give you eternal life. Brothers and sisters, what will we do with the minus Christ has given us? The world tells us to keep our faith in good gifts from God hidden and to do nothing. The enemy of our souls will do all that he can to keep us from being faithful to Jesus. But yet Jesus has defeated Satan and he will sustain us until the end, guiltless on the day of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1.8 says. So may we be faithful until he returns. May we pursue good works until our Lord, unto our Lord, for his glory and his fame, so that when the day comes, we will receive our eternal reward and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And may those who don't believe in him submit to his love, mercy, and reign, knowing him as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that we can hear you, Jesus, speak even now through your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just apply these words of our Savior to our hearts and that you would strengthen us to put into practice our faith so that our light would shine before others and others would give praise to you, Father, so that we would edify our brothers and sisters and they in turn would be able to edify others and your church would be built up. Lord, I ask that you would go with each and every one of us today and I ask that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, you would convict them of their sin, Lord, and draw them to yourself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.